This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, creating guidelines over which patients get ventilators and which ones don't. The goal of this framework was to allow doctors to continue on in that role of a faithful advocate for their patients and have a separate group that is making these really tragic choices. Tough decisions over who lives and who dies when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Reed Pence, the producer and host of Radio Health Journal. If you like listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. We're looking at a possibility of a billion climate refugees by mid-century. The next looming global crisis. Then... We look at housing today, and it's a nightmare. It's homelessness is increasing around the country. I think a quarter of tenants spend more than half their income on rent. A deep dive into the housing crisis plaguing America's landscapes. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Radio Health Journal and Viewpoints on your favorite radio station. And subscribe and listen anytime on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Radio Health Journal. As the COVID-19 pandemic has ramped up, one of the ongoing headlines has been the looming shortage of ventilators, the breathing machines that keep people in respiratory failure alive. If there aren't enough ventilators to go around, doctors will have a tough, tragic decision which patients get a ventilator and which ones don't, or who lives and who dies. But at least there are rules to guide them. The main thing that we are trying to achieve is to help doctors and hospitals have fair, consistent, and transparent ways to allocate ventilators and ICU beds if there simply are not enough to go around. That's Dr. Douglas White, professor of critical care medicine and director of the Program on Ethics and Decision-Making in Critical Illness at the University of Pittsburgh. He's co-author of a new set of guidelines on the allocation of limited resources, appearing less than a month ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Hundreds of hospitals are adopting the guidelines as they fight COVID-19. The framework is really designed around uh, putting forward criteria to help prioritize individuals for ventilator use when there are not enough to go around. And the two main criteria in the framework are patients' chances of surviving to hospital discharge, and then also the patients' chances of benefiting in the several years after the hospitalization, assuming that they survive. And so that's a point system on one to eight with lower numbers, meaning that you have a much better chance of benefiting from ICU treatment if you need it. And the idea is that we just treat on down that list of patients for as many ventilators as we have until we run out. Fairness and doing the greatest good for as many people as possible are among the ethical values White and his team followed in drawing up the rules. And unlike some previous guidelines, these begin with the assumption that everyone who is eligible for care in the ICU is eligible for a ventilator or other scarce resource. I designed this framework initially in response to what I viewed as really ethically problematic guidelines coming out of some medical professional societies that started by saying, you're excluded from any access to the ICU if you have advanced dementia or if you have advanced heart or lung disease or if you're very elderly. 
And I looked at those criteria and I said, that is, number one, sends an incredibly problematic message that there are some lives that are not worth saving. And number two is probably in violation of discrimination laws in the United States. White says many other factors are completely irrelevant. Race, gender, or what your social position is, even if you're the hospital president. But some people have wondered if rules inevitably discriminate against the poor, elderly, disabled, or people of color who have higher rates of diseases that lessen their lifespans. I think that would be a misunderstanding of the framework. So we consciously, and for this reason exactly, said it's not about someone's life expectancy across the whole lifespan. Someone who is from a lower socioeconomic group who's had poor access to health care is more likely to have things like diabetes or high blood pressure. And these are diseases that do shorten one's full lifespan. And instead, what we're saying is don't focus on that. Look at are there people who are so in, in such an advanced state of end-stage illness that they're not likely to derive benefit in the very near term? So it's really their near-term life expectancy that we're looking at rather than their long-term life expectancy for the exact reason that looking at long-term life expectancy would indeed discriminate against persons with disabilities and poor access to care. The guidelines also attempt to take the morally difficult decision of choosing between patients out of the hands of the physicians at the bedside. Instead, it should be made by a triage team or a triage officer. And this is an individual who is not currently involved in the care of patients and who is instead really focused on knowing how many ventilators are in the hospital, how many patients are in the hospital, and having a very clear understanding of what are the rules by which we're allocating these ventilators. So the goal is that this approach would both be more objective and create more consistent decisions across people. But I also think equally important, it takes the burden off of doctors who, of course, have a deep ethical obligation to advocate for the well-being of their individual patients. And you can imagine how hard it would be for that same doctor to also be trying to make these incredibly complicated public health decisions that may not be consistent with any individual patient's best interest. The guidelines also could alleviate the fear some doctors have that in making life and death decisions, they may be sued or even face criminal charges if they choose against a family's wishes. Once a state says these are the guidelines, that affords doctors a fair amount of protection from legal liability if they are indeed following the guidelines that the state tells them to follow. The other part of this that I think is equally important is that when we are truly in a public health emergency, the state typically issues a notice that it's a public health emergency, and often there are legal protections that kick in for doctors for following what we call the crisis standards of care in the setting of a public health emergency. It may seem that these new guidelines are coming out in response to COVID-19, But White says the process started long ago. This work actually started back in 2007, around the time of the avian influenza outbreak and the H1N1 pandemic. And it was a process that involved ethicists and critical care physicians and disaster medicine experts. And then we had a multi-year engagement with community members in which we presented this initial framework to them and engaged them in telling us, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? How can we adjust this? to make it as acceptable as possible for the communities that would experience it. But after all that work, White would actually prefer that his new rules gather dust. The hope is that this framework never has to be used and that hospitals are able to be creative in really increasing the supply of ventilators and substantially increasing the numbers of patients that they can treat compared to how many they're usually able to treat.
there was just a great article, I think, in the New Yorker about the MacGyvers who are finding a way through the ventilator shortages. And I think this is a great idea. You may not know that in the 1952 polio epidemic in Copenhagen, they didn't have enough what at the time were iron lungs. They didn't have the kind of ventilators that we normally have. But there weren't enough of these iron lungs to go around for people who had respiratory failure from the polio virus. And so they had medical students 24-7 at these patients' bedsides just simply using bags to pump oxygen and air into the patient's lungs for weeks and months on end for some patients. And this kind of creativity and flexibility, I think, is job number one, two, and three to get us through this current crisis. And even if we get through this pandemic without having to make those tough choices, another pandemic is inevitable. With world travel and trade so prevalent, pandemics are becoming more likely, not less. So we'd better be prepared to deal with them. You can find out more about all our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. Our studio producer is Jason Dickey. I'm Nancy Benson. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. It's really important to share our emotions and learn how to express how we're feeling through this process, right? Learning how to talk about your emotions, that's part of resilience. Strategies for coping with stress and anxiety during COVID-19. Then nursing homes have been hotbeds of COVID infections. How are they making sure the virus doesn't get in? I've been in this business for over three decades, and this is the tightest control that I've ever seen. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.